0: Yeah, I don't know if you guys remember this. Do you remember when we did *Spirited Away* uh, at all? I remember that we did it. Yeah. Uh, when, we, when we, okay, And that's good enough. When we did it, I I said something like, "I feel stupid." It was one of those movies. That as soon as I started watching it, I was like, "Well, this this is not this isn't the one. This isn't going to be the week where I really I really bust uh, any genius uh, words out." I felt very stupid watching *Spirited Away*, and uh, I definitely felt a little bit of that again this week. <laughs>
1: It is uh, a dense movie. It really is. Yeah, you're not wrong.
0: Whose so. idea was it again to do 2001 and Solaris back-to-back? Was that? Well, did we all We all decided that was a good idea, huh? Yeah, but that's you
2: had totally your Arthur's
0: fault. You had your chance.
2: Yeah. You had your chance to yeah, he
0: Yeah, he did give us the option to uh, veto anything. <laughs> and we all said, no, that sounds great. Yeah, uh, so it is kind be, of all our doing.
2: I think it's appropriate what to watch them back-to-back, though.
0: Do oh, totally, totally. Oh yeah.
1: Well, in fact, TCM Hub within HBO Max recommends you watch 2001 and
0: Solaris back to back. Hmm, that's very funny. So, Dustin, you had said last week, or maybe this was off air, that uh, uh, Tarkovsky made this as a response to 2001. I read somewhere this week that he didn't see 2001 until after they had made Solaris, and I still still said it was sterile, and you know, the the his his complaints about it were were still the same. But I, I'd read that it wasn't until later.
1: That is a conflicting account, and like most accounts dealing with uh, this uh, era of cinema, I have no idea who to believe. But uh, uh, I think I heard more often and maybe more early on to believe uh, that he made this as direct uh, hot French fry in the eye of Stanley Kubrick.
0: I want to believe. You know, it's more fun to believe that, right?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. That narrative seems better to me, although I don't know exactly what Kubrick was saying for him to say no to. And exactly what the no is that Tarkovsky is saying in this film. So well, there th- is that.
2: I think the theory is that Kubrick's film is lifeless and and cold and sterile. Uh, and uh, Tarkovsky's bringing humanity into the science fiction. I think it's kind oh. of the, there's a warmth and a, a heart that Kubrick lacks. I think it's kind of the idea there.
0: I mean, this film is, without, you know, spoiling where we'll go this week, uh, it's decidedly more emotionally nuanced than 2001, probably.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. For sure. But, well, hello, everybody. Let's do this thing. Welcome to the Good Trash Honorcast, where we discuss the films you'll never discuss the film today. Of course, unless you're tuning in in January, and then we will be doing those movies, because we'll be doing an anti-trash marathon of some sort. This time's anti-trash marathon is the film solaris uh by andrei tarkovsky released in 1972 1974 or 1976 depending on which particular release version and narrative speaking of contrary stories uh we can't figure out when this thing happened uh but that is uh the film in question and uh i'm still dustin
2: i'm still arthur
0: and i am still dalton
1: Yes, and we are still all who we are, and we are still talking about the movies. Uh, we want to warn you, dear listener, this is an analysis show, not a review show, and that does mean we're going to spoil. I, it, it, does that does that question apply? I don't even know. But uh, we will be spoiling the movie, uh, but we will wait towards the end to do that. We'll have to, uh, sort of a brief reprieve at the front end, what that looks like as a synopsis, uh, quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, a little game that we like to call Expand the syllabus, and then after that all all spoiler bets are off. And uh so once you hear that kicking music, uh know that we're going to explain the end and how exactly they are going to use the sun to slingshot around to arrive at warp speed to go back in time and save the whales and of Solaris with Superman. So uh there you go, you've been warned. Um Arthur, hmm. do you have a synopsis for us, pal?
2: Psychologist Chris Kelvin is called upon to assess a situation with astronauts on a space station near the mysterious planet Solaris, a planet which seems to feed off the dreams and psyche of anyone within range. What is real and what does it mean? Kelvin must find out for himself.
1: Yes, correct. All those things are true. Uh, That is uh, the movie. So uh, I've seen the movie before. Have either of you ever seen it before? No. Nope. All right, well, um, Dalton, I'll start with your virgin ears and eyes. Uh, what is your first experience of watching Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris?
0: This is so much movie. There's <laughs> so much movie here. I don't even know how to answer that question. Uh, I mean, much like last week's movie, I think, you know, with 2001, I seeing that movie 3 or 4 times made me finally feel equipped to kind of talk about it. I definitely could have stood to watch this movie at least 3 or 4 more times before we recorded. Uh would uh you know t- time limitation's not not being a problem that that might have been something I consider doing. Uh but but with as with 2001 it, it feels like a question, right? This is a movie that is not meant to be solved, it is meant to be experienced. And I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, I I didn't go for this as hard as I did uh, the last time we did a Tarkovsky uh, science fiction film, which I believe was for the last November. Was that for Dustin's birthday marathon? Was that when we did Stalker? that sounds about right. Yeah, Yeah.
2: 2020. Yeah,
0: 2020. That's what I thought. And that that movie just immediately. uh, Similarly long, similarly dense, similarly Russian. uh, For whatever reason, that sucked me in a lot more. Solaris kind of held me at arm's length throughout most of its runtime, which isn't to say I didn't like it. Uh, I just didn't totally give myself over to it. I I do think that the ending is incredible. I, I and I think there's a lot of things in this movie that are that are really just astonishing. This there's this whole sequence early on where um our, our lead character <clears throat> uh he's getting this briefing on on what's going on Solaris, Chris Kelvin. Um uh, he's getting this briefing uh from uh, a, a pilot who who once had an experience uh over the atmosphere of solaris and he, he's watching tape of people talking about the planet and then tape of tape of the filming of the planet it's like this whole sequence of screens within screens going on and then that was a moment where i was like uh-oh uh-oh <laughs> this movie's got too much going on for me to handle i think Uh, but, but it's that kind of stuff that makes you excited to watch a movie like this. I, I I think when, when, when that, when, you know, within the first half hour of a movie, they're doing some sort of very, very interesting viewer, viewee, uh, removal, uh, type discourse that early, that that's something to get excited about for me. Uh, there, there's all kinds of great lines in this, uh, uh, like, uh, you're just a mechanical reproduction and aren't we all? Uh, shame will save mankind like this movie is full even the translation like still like holds some power because this movie is full of people saying shit like that we don't need other worlds we need a mirror come on (laughs) this movie it's full of great stuff like that so if you i don't know if you're if you're into thinky science fiction and you've got the three hours to commit to it it's definitely worth checking out Uh, i I had a good time with it but it's it's a lot you know it's it's definitely if you're going to watch in a couple of chunks i don't think that's the worst thing in the world it's better Mm -hmm. to watch a movie than not watch one uh, is my thinking so if you got to watch it in, in segments i don't think that that's the worst way to experience something um this movie is in two parts and i, I think it's a pretty clean delineation between the, the two acts or, as it were mm-hmm. so if, if nothing else it gives you a clean breaking point much like uh the intermission in 2001 Uh, It's weird how movies used to care about us. You know, they used to love that we had bladders (laughs) and might not be good enough. Movies used to, like, uh, apologize for being three hours long, you know?
1: Yeah, Tarkovsky does not apologize for anything ever, although maybe he does say sorry for the horse in this movie. I think he does say sorry for the horse, but we'll talk more about that later. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you in reaction to Solaris? Uh I,
2: I I kind of agree with Dalton here. I think that I wasn't as keen on this as I was on Stalker. It's also um a much more approachable film than Stalker is. Uh we've Nearly, kind of yeah. alluded to this being this big obtuse movie, but it, it's very straightforward. I mean, there's a narrative, there's a plot, there are, you know, things that follow. I mean, this is very much in line with something I think, like for lack of a better comparison, but you would see out of A24, Ari Aster or, or um, what's his doodle? Uh, the witch guy. Can't think of his name Oh, or. Eggers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it has that kind of at arm's length thing about it, but it is a pretty straightforward story. Uh, it just takes a very long time to get where it's going with its different parts. Um, uh, and so that I think kind of caught me off guard. I was expecting something a little more experiential like stalker where you are just kind of drawn into this world and things get weird and we do have a couple of those moments as dalton alludes to at the beginning with the uh film within a film within a film bit uh which is really cool also uh when uh kelvin arrives on uh the space uh, station and meets the second doctor i believe and a uh surprise visitor runs out of his room Uh, it's just like what is going on (laughs) you know Yeah, it's a pretty bizarre moment. Uh, And then it it fails to stay weird. Uh, It's one of those weird movies where I I think I would have liked it if it had gotten weirder as it progressed uh, instead of kind of settling into a narrative. Um, But I I, I do like the story. I like this premise a lot. I like what it does with it. I think it asks interesting questions, posits interesting ideas. You know, it does have that heady sci-fi thing going for it. It just takes a long time to get there. And that's really the thing. If, if you're on board with this type of slow cinema, I think you'll, you'll be on board for Solaris. But I watched uh, Soderbergh's version this morning, and it really does kind of boil down those ideas into a much quicker watch while still not being a commercial film. Uh, And so it still has some of those slow aspects. It has some of those things to hold you at arm's length, like keep it from, you know, fully embracing what's going on. It does hold your hand a little more. Um, And so I, I think I like the idea of this movie more than I like what uh Tarkovsky's put together and I think that maybe more of a personal thing I don't think it's a bad movie a bad movie for me if that makes sense um and so uh, I, I there are a lot of things about it that I like uh, as Dalton mentioned I love the ending I think it's fantastic uh where it goes uh there's some cool moments uh some anti-gravity moments which are really cool mm. um and so you know things like that there are there are bits about it that work but I think by and large I'm I'm colder on this one especially in comparison to our previous two watches and so that's where i'm at with solaris
1: all righty well thank you very much for that mr arthur gordon um i would have to say that i did not name this movie when i got to pick a movie for my 40th birthday to be in the marathon of movies that i love because i don't love it nearly as much as i do uh, stalker and there are there, the reasons for it are a lot of what you guys have said I think it's good and I think, I think Tarkovsky is a good filmmaker but uh, this movie just doesn't quite get it to the finish uh, for me either I, I think there is a lot to like about it but it is weird I don't know I maybe it's because I want to believe it's the anti-Stanley Kubrick thing and instead of having your own thesis it's about why you hate somebody else And that is really not a thesis of your own, which makes your own thesis kind of unclear. Does that make sense? And it does feel like generally the film itself is kind of an unclear exploration of uh, some various and sundry ideas. The the actual Stanislaw Lem novel, Solaris, uh, the Polish author, uh, is is a great book in its own right. Uh, I teach it in one of my courses I teach. Uh, the college I teach at where we teach the writer's theologian. He does a sort of psychological constructionism uh, with that particular book. And I really do enjoy it. And this movie is certainly not that book. Uh, And so I think I like this movie and I also like this book, but I don't like or dislike them for the same reasons. Uh, And it seems to me as though uh, there's one good idea that's really at the heart of this movie, that is revealed in the last forty-five minutes, and that is a real problem for the film. If your one good idea in your two-hour and forty-five-minute movie is only sort of explicated in the last forty-five minutes,
0: yeah, there's there's that birthday sequence, right? That right. is that's the moment the movie, where, that's where it, the movie turns on. I had a feeling that's where you were talking about. Yeah, it, it really—that's the moment that all of stalker feels like right all of stalkers filled with scenes and moments that feel like that sequence uh, and, and so it does feel like it takes a while for the rubber to meet the road for the rubber to meet the road here as as far as just like getting going uh which again is, is weird considering both adaptations both science fiction stories at some level mm-hmm. uh, so it's i think it is interesting that stalker like spends so much of its runtime being about what it's about uh, where, whereas, yeah, this is a film where it does feel like it kind of takes a while to get where it's going. Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, So, uh, you know, and again, Lem famously didn't care for it, you know, and so, I mean, that makes sense because he does kind of turn it into try- crime and punishment in space, which is, I think, fair uh, as a critique uh, of the movie, but that is part of what I like about the movie as well, but also that's clearly not what the novel Solaris is about. So, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I I would simply say... I don't know that we should be thinking too much about Kubrick because I think that's the wrong-headed way to approach this, although mm. it does please me to think that I, – I think we should just think about this movie in terms of an exploration of human psychology and that space to reflect another title of a later Tarkovsky film uh, is a mirror, or perhaps the divine is a mirror, or perhaps experience itself is a mirror, and the, the mirror not only shows you yourself – But it shows you what you do not wish to see. That's the objective reality of the mirror, I think, in Tarkovsky. And uh, doing that, I think, is doing a good thing and probably something worthwhile and worth thinking about. Although, I don't think it's worth watching very often because it is a bit too much of a time investment. So, there you go, dear friends. Our biases are generally, ah, we see why, but maybe not. Uh, (laughs) is Is that fair? We see why, but maybe not.
2: Yeah, I think
0: so. Okay.
2: Yeah, probably. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I look. I finished this and wanted to watch it again. Truly, I. But it, it was because I felt like I missed something. I guess. So may, maybe you're right.
1: Yeah. Well, I. I don't. I... I don't know either. But let's do something else. I think uh, maybe to expand this discussion of this film, let's uh, play a game called Expanding the Syllabus. Dalton, can you explain to the dear listener what Expanding the Syllabus is all about?
0: I'll certainly try, Dustin. Uh, As you've already mentioned, uh, this is a show where we would normally discuss the films you'd never talk about in a film studies course. Expanding the Syllabus is the sequence of the show, the segment of the show, where we, we do that. We talk about the movies you wouldn't discuss in a film studies course, as if we were teaching them in a course of some kind. Uh, obviously, as Dustin's already mentioned as well, we're in the middle of our anti-trash marathon, our January marathon every year, where we do talk about the movies that get covered in, in collegiate and university-level classes. Uh, so uh, th- that's the, the challenge here, is if you're going to teach Solaris, what are you going to teach alongside it? What is the class going to look like? Uh, what is going to be the focus uh, as far as uh, the curriculum and and the sort of the broad strokes ideas being presented? Uh, That is expanding the syllabus in a nutshell, I think.
1: I I think you've done it all quite well in a nutshell. So thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what does your syllabus involving Solaris look like?
2: Yeah, so I was watching uh, the Soderbergh version of this morning. I started thinking a lot about adaptation uh, just in general and also re-adapting a book into a movie again. And the idea that sometimes, you know, people don't realize there's a book to start with or, you know, whatever that might be. Uh, and so I want to discuss this idea of new takes on classic stories uh, when the original book isn't a well-known property or people don't realize there's a book or maybe they've just never read that. Or, or you know, they immediately think of the movie rather than uh, uh, there being a book. And so I, I think initially I would start with Solaris um, with the book, this and Soderbergh's take. Uh, And then I would look at True Grit, right? It's another one based on a book. Uh, The the John Wayne version is considered a classic, and then the Coens redo the story with their take on True Grit. Um, There's kind of that buzz about, well, we don't need a new True Grit. We got this one already, you know, and not considering the idea that they're going back to that original source material to to redevelop the story. Uh, And then also Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I think, fits in here as well, obviously, Mm. a children's book. But that Gene Wilder movie kind of stands as the Willy Wonka. And so when Tim Burton comes along and they try to redo it, people are, you know, they don't want that to happen because they've already got this penultimate, you know, this ultimate version. uh, And not considering the idea that somebody else wants to re-look at that initial story and try to tell it in a new way. And, And so that's kind of where I'd start with this. And then we'd move into a middle ground where the book is a bestseller. And then the movie diverts hard, uh, and the author and audience aren't sure how to react. And then the author pushes to get a different version uh, with their remake, and they might write the teleplay. And we look at The Shining, uh, which kind of has this fascinating dialogue of adaptation and readaptation, and you know King's involvement, Kubrick's uh, original work there with the movie. Uh, I, I think it's just an interesting look at adaptation and what is adaptation. We'd probably look to define. What that means as well uh, in relation to bringing something from page to screen <gasps> sorry my dog sneezed
1: <laughs> that was adorable
2: uh and he's still sneezing uh, and then from there we would look at uh, a contrast of really well-known stories that get remade time and time again, but nobody seems to care or be bothered. And in fact, there's almost a mindset that every generation needs their version of the story. And I'm thinking Dracula, I'm thinking Sherlock Holmes, I'm mm-hmm. thinking Pride and Prejudice, which are really kind of counter, right? I mean, there are so many versions of each of those stories and everybody's like, Oh, Hey, I new Dracula. Cool. But if we try to, you know, take another one that is so beloved, we're considered classic, right? Then we get that pushback. And so I think there's an interesting psychology there to talk about an audience reaction to remakes and adaptations and reboots uh, and how much of that factors into just kind of this nostalgic ownership of a property once once it has been seen by an audience member and that kind of battle of no, don't take that, but you know, the, the original still exists. And so I think that's just an interesting conversation to have, especially in relation to books that exist and have been adapted multiple times and people either forget about that or they don't seem to care about that and they're look forward to this new take on this classic story and so I think that's where uh, I would go with Solaris is to put it in this adaptation module in in a class maybe about screenwriting or filmmaking in general and selecting stories to tell that's where we'd go with it.
1: Yeah, I wonder if there's like a, a slight difference between what you're seeing with the novel and with theater, because in theater there's kind of like this expectation that's going to be remade again and again. We're going to recast it. It's going to be yeah. envisioned. Yeah. But there's a way in which the first adaptation that's you know successful of a, uh, of, a of a novelistic work. I'm thinking Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. That again, massively changed and altered from the source material. But there's like this sort of assumption that you do once and for all with stories, but not so much with plays.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, I don't know. It
2: it, it is an interesting dichotomy to look at because you're right. I mean, how many different takes are there on Oklahoma, or you know, to change up to kill Mockingbird, or, or whatever that might be? And it's theater, and so there's some kind of expectation that you know that changes welcomed you know how can we do this in a new unique way or take it back to the bare bones and and to see that against cinema you know hollywood's out of ideas or whatever i think it is a fun dichotomy
1: yeah that's strange well all right then thank you very much for that mr arthur gordon mr dalton stewart have you a syllabus for us
0: yeah i suppose i i could whip something up for you real quick so <clears throat> we've been doing a lot of science fiction, and most of my classes have have stayed in that realm, and this one's no exception. Ed. So there's going to be some repeats here, uh, some films that have come up on uh, the preceding week's syllabi, both on mine or on Arthur or Dustin's. Uh, that's because I think all these films are really good, and we've mentioned them before because they they are sort of uh uh, titans in the genre uh, but this is specifically going to be a class about sad science fiction uh or, or at the very least uh, emotionally wrought science fiction i i think uh whatever uh tarkovsky's motivations for making this movie um that definitely seems to be trying to insert some some real human pathos in, into the science fiction genre definitely seems to be at the root of it um what regardless of winner how he saw two thousand one as base odyssey because I agree with us, and it's it's more interesting to just to take this film on its own merits um but but there is there is something here that I think sets to sets it apart from some science fiction so we'd we'll be looking at this film and of course stalker uh I, I do think they work really well together uh we'd also be looking at Claire denise highlife, a film we've discussed on this show before I uh, would we'll be looking at the uh the film annihilation uh, another adaptation uh uh from a novel uh we'd look at uh, the brad pitt film ad astra uh the well what's his name that did uh whiplash uh, first man we look at first man uh the the biopic on neil armstrong uh, sort of a biopic you know you can make the case it's uh other things uh and we would look at christopher nolan's interstellar and i think the the through line on all of these films is yes they're they're largely space movies or films where humankind has to interact with space in some capacity uh right um what i think is interesting in all of these films is the way in which uh that experience with the vastness and unknowability of the extraterrestrial where that experience forces an inward exploration of some kind uh, and i i think that that's true in all of these films whether it's you know the very real and grounded science fiction of first man which isn't against a fiction of any kind strictly speaking um But, but very unless you, uh, (laughs) unless you like certain conspiracy theories, and in in which case, I guess you could call it a fiction. Uh, (laughs) But you know, that's just a movie about a dude who goes to space and gets really sad about the child that he lost. Uh, And each of these films reckons with that, that sort of a similar note. While it might not necessarily be the loss of a child or even necessarily a loss, um, each of these films has a character. Or characters who are being forced to interrogate their life uh, through this lens of of giantness through this lens of the, the, the smallness of their own experiences in the faces of something uh, you know truly unknowable uh, which I think is great and again all these movies it's a different metaphor right annihilation it's this meteor that hits the earth and uh, in interstellar it's it's the search for a planet that can sustain human life uh, in Solaris, it's uh, you know, uh, can a being made of neutrinos that's made out of your own memories truly be a real person? Uh, high life, uh, God, where do we even start? What <laughs> that movie's about? Uh, but again, all, I think all of these films do a really great job of of putting these the, these sort of larger than life stakes, the, these sort of uh, space opera dynamics, and put them into real lived in human. Lives, uh, and, and that I, I think is really valuable. Again, I, I can see what would have motivated uh, Tarkovsky to to make a film like Solaris, because even even today, we we do feel like I, I feel like anyway that a lot of our, our science fiction films are. Are bereft of real meaning. Uh, is that part to do with how many science fiction films are also superhero films? Probably. Um, but you know, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, the, the point is even with something like Dune, a, a really good movie, uh, a really, you know, effective adaptation of its source material, but a, a film that, you know, isn't always able to be about human emotion as often as it probably even wants to be. I, Cause there are moments where that film reveals itself to be about human feeling. Uh, and you can tell that that's a, a motivator for Denis on, on that picture. But even with something like that, its grandness of scope does prevent it from being just about these sorts of smaller human concerns. And I, I think that's something kind of interesting with all of these science fiction films, with the exception of Interstellar. They're all kind of smaller uh, in terms of what we think of the scale of a science fiction film to be, uh, because they, they are focused more on on smaller human problems uh and i again I, I just think there's value in that there's value in looking at space as a as a mirror for us again that that's one of the the highlights of this film for me is is this library where they this this library birthday party uh where uh the cast of the film gathers to celebrate uh dr snout's uh birthday correct uh yeah, dr snout uh they they Meet and have this kind of lengthy philosophical discourse about what they've been experiencing throughout the the events of the film, and not every movie necessarily needs everybody to like really break open the the philosophy for the audience. Sometimes that stuff can stay in the the the, the, the subtext; it can stay, you know, sort of to the back of the picture. But yeah, hey, I like it when it comes to the the forefront. Um, but in, anyway, uh, that that scene. I think gives us something to to really sink our teeth into for all of these movies uh, because while not all of these films have a scene like that, I think they all are engaged in the same sort of philosophical discourse uh, where they, they are using the experience of being out in space or at the very least humankind intersecting with the extraterrestrial in some capacity, um, how, how that is necessarily a transformative experience. Uh, and how it forces you to do a certain amount of uh, interior uh, evaluation, so anyway, sad science fiction is is the class uh, <laughs> uh, probably going to be a, f- focused mostly on, uh on film, uh, as opposed to being any other sort of class for, for this week 's episode yeah it 's going to be mostly focused on how, how do we tell these these human stories with uh, larger than life trappings?
1: Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, My class is uh, probably, I guess, it would be a core, it would be a module, I was be clear. But it would be a course on maybe Lacan and film theory, I think, Uh, an entire class on it. And so the module that uh, I would use Solaris in is dealing with this one little line and the various sort of essays that surround it. Uh, we'd be reading from Ycrete, uh, which translates writings. I don't know why Lacan's writings stays in the French title in in, in the United States, but it does for whatever reason. Uh, but *Ecrit* has got the, the set of essays about the unconscious and how the unconscious is structured like a language and how cinematic language – goes about finding ways to structure the unconscious. I would begin by going back to uh, that uh, German expressionist mode that we thought about, thought about quite a bit when we looked at Metropolis and used the cabinet of Dr. Caligari as that city sort of looks like Cesar's madness. Uh, throughout that is a good early example that, that I'd move into the surrealist uh, wrestlings with the same kind of idea, looking at Unci starring uh starring, excuse me, uh, directed by Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali. Uh, Moving a little bit further forward in terms of these structures of the mind, uh, I I think uh, Solaris would be a great example there because, again, I think what we see is the structure of the unconscious sort of played out cinematically in the language of cinema. Uh, through those encounters with Hari and uh, whatever it is that we see at the end of the film, more on that anon. Against spoiler light, we're going to try to say spoiler light uh, at this point. But the other two films that I would use, I think, are Inception, which was uh, massively inspired by Solaris, uh, directed by Christopher Nolan, and finally The Matrix. That the Matrix itself is a structure of the unconscious and uh, thinking about the structures of that video game world in the first uh, 1999 Matrix film uh, might be an interesting way into these particular uh, thematic concepts that we find in Lacan. And there is a glut of writing on each of these films from a Lacanian perspective, dealing with the unconscious. So there would be no uh, lack in uh, material for students to pull from for potential papers and Uh, Consideration and all that good stuff there. So that's kind of what the class would look like for me. Dear friends, your syllabus just got much longer, and I think now is the time for us all to get down to business.
2: It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. It's business. It's business
0: time. You know, it's Oh, I, I was just going to say, Dustin, it, it is very clear which of us uh, actually does have to assemble classes uh, as part of their, their life. <laughs> Yours and Arthur's are, are usually uh, a little bit more thought. Thought out, I think, and uh, you know, I'm just gonna go ahead and call myself out for it. <laughs> <laughs> I see it, I recognize it. <laughs>
1: hey,
0: I, well, I think you know, you always have great ideas. I love oh, what you're doing. No, so. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. No, yeah. I, I wasn't fishing for the compliment. I did is just <laughs> there is a structure to to yours sometimes that uh, is is hard to not notice which i love
1: there's a structure to the unconscious language of my syllabus building apparently
0: <laughs> <laughs> they, maybe there you have to it.
1: weirdly paraphrase lacan oh no uh, so i don't know what all we're going to talk about and how we're going to go about it but i want to begin with the horse uh, i don't know if you guys noticed i don't know if it was even part of the tarkovsky lore of your minds but a horse plays prominently in the asomiting his- scenes at the beginning of the film and that we see several drawings of horses in uh, Sartorius's gabarians, and I think there's even one in Snout's office uh, or his quarters or whatever on the space station. Do you guys, did you guys notice this or recall this uh, as we watched the
0: film? No, not at all. I was actually wondering earlier when you brought up horses, what the hell you were talking about. Well,
1: so. I, I think they are kind of glorious and beautiful creatures, especially in uh, this film. But there is a scene in Andrei Rublev where a horse needs to fall down a set of stairs outside of a tower onto a spear in order to get the shot. Andre shot the horse in the neck.
0: They just killed the horse. Yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) Sure.
0: (laughs) Old school filmmaking. Uh, uh,
2: I think Andre feels bad.
1: And I just, I just want to point out the hoarseness of this movie. And this is not the only time that we see sort of like excessive hoarseness after Andre Rublev. So I I don't know if that has anything to do with anything other than sometimes filmmakers uh, are aware of their press and will do things in order to say they're sorry or justify themselves or what have you.
0: Well, that's interesting. Uh, Again, didn't know this this bit of background on the production of Rubilev, Uh, but as much of this movie is about. Not even even the film being about, but so much of the subtext is focused on nature. Right? We get so many lingering shots of of greenery. It's a very verdant movie, uh, especially in its opening.
1: Um, oh, I love so those underwater uh,
0: grasses. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. Great stuff there with the underwater grasses. Love those it. Shots uh, are
1: imitated a couple times in some shots in uh, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams uh, anthology.
0: Uh, well, I was just thinking, even in Stalker, there there's a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, nature photography that's really quite captivating. Uh, but in this film, it, I guess it makes sense that uh, as much as, you know, earthly beauties are, are sort of centered in this movie in some ways, it would make sense for horses to show up. Because, yeah, they're they're cool. Uh, you could call them large, dumb dogs, and I don't think you'd be wrong to say that, but they're also <laughs> quite majestic and hard, hard to tame.
1: <laughs> Where's the horse ain't coming from? I've never heard this out of your horses, mouth, ever. I
0: think horses are overrated. I like them. I do like them quite a bit. I think they're very cool. Horses are
1: overrated? Yes, what?
0: horses are overrated. <laughs> I- <laughs> All I'm saying is some cultures understand that it's normal to eat horses, and some cultures are weird about eating horses, and we should be less weird about eating horses.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my
0: gosh! I mean, weird little boxes about which animals are too cute to eat, and I don't think it makes any sense for a horse to not be any less edible than a cow. You know what I mean? No, I don't. <laughs> this is, this is me having a bone to pick with a, our, our, uh, our, uh... Fetishization of the American uh, Old West. I guess. Have we
1: done was, a Western marathon on the show, Arthur? Surely we have. I, my, we, is, we did two. We did like, uh, a we did a Western
0: walk. anti-trash and a Western trash marathon. A couple. And of years how
1: has this nonsense not come up before? That's what I'm trying to figure <laughs> out.
0: <laughs> we didn't talk about that. Uh, we didn't talk about Preacher at all. We didn't talk about the the uh, comic uh, the comic book Preacher and how there's a whole thing about horse meat. <laughs> Do you guys remember this? Is this just a me thing? It totally just, just a thing. you don't remember this. There's a whole side plot in uh, the the comics uh, preacher about how Jesse Custer gets mad about somebody eating horses. <laughs> I just oh think it's
1: gone.
2: Well, I think about it all the time. Tune in next week for my treatise on eating cats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's nasty. It'll make you sick.
0: Look, cats even as clean. This is not coming from being a place of, of a cat owner and cat lover. This is purely <laughs> a logistics. That's going to be, that's a stringy animal. That's good for making uh, violin strings and nothing else, <laughs> nothing else to my beloved animals. Oh my God. <laughs> they would eat me if it came down to it. Oh, uh, they would. Uh, wow, they would.
1: Okay, so if we we're recasting the uh, crew of the uh, Solaris ship, clearly uh, I, I think uh, Dalta may be Sartorius.
0: Uh, I'm I'm
2: like, uh, of I like George buy. Clooney for Kelvin. I don't know if that would be a thing, but I think that'd be a good pick.
0: Uh, okay. I, I got to say, Arthur, I'm glad you had a chance to to watch the uh, the Soderbergh version. I, I think Clooney's probably good casting for Kelvin. Look, I mean, he's look, a little
2: tight w- 99 minutes. Why would I not? I
0: mean, I kind of <laughs> wanted to. I, I if, if I hadn't drugged my feet on getting a 72 Solaris watch, I might have gotten to 2002 Solaris. Uh but boy what a what a hotter kelvin no offense to donatus banonius woof name into tough yeah
2: okay, good luck yeah
0: tight uh, who also has a different voice actor i'm just now realizing correct uh, wow huh. yeah different different actor for the dub. uh very interesting stuff on that um yeah, you know, no no disrespect. Uh but Clooney is a much, much hotter uh Dr. Kelvin. But there's a sadness to Clooney that I think probably works. Yeah. Uh I, I assume he brings that to that version of the movie. Yeah,
2: yeah definitely. It's like replacing Michael Nyquist with uh Daniel Craig and the girl with the dragon tattoo.
0: Oh yep. man, yeah. American choice is very American choice. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that is American choice. Anyway. Uh, is there anything going on with the screens within screens? Uh, I I know we've kind of alluded to it already, um, but uh, I, I guess to, uh, for anybody that didn't watch Solaris before listening to this. I did
2: read that that whole thing is kind of a dig at bureaucracy.
0: I had to be, right? Like it right. feels so That's bureaucratic.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, oh that sure. makes and so that, much that, sense. That, yeah, the Politburo and all that sort of Soviet era kind of madness that people suffered through as part of but i think also part of it's metaphorical about the breakdown of memory that the the Mm. tape itself is missing things that were Mm. in the tape and then the recording of the tape of uh, burton on the planet it is missing things as well and so each memory and act of memory itself has gaps well, and ways.
0: Burton Burton's self editing, right? He yeah. he's even going yeah. in the present. Uh ah, we can skip past this part. We know. Right. And it continues like that for a while. We can move on.
2: Well, even the yeah. thing, well even, you know, kind of play with that memory the idea the, the the way he plays with coloring, right? Because when we get the video of Solaris, I think we go back to color, whereas mm. of that is in black and white or monochromatic at least. Yeah. God, there's so
0: much playing with color in the in the early parts of this movie too, More right? Throughout no. And I think yeah, a lot of continues. the
1: associations that we make with them are sort of accidental. I mean, it, I think it is sort of like Lindsay Anderson's if that's sort of a purely uh, economic kind of situation where they just had so much color film and so much uh, black and white monochrome film stock and they just did what they did.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Is that is that the case?
1: Yeah, there's some day for night, you know, sometimes it, that where it is on mm-hmm. purpose. Like, hey, let's use a black and white for this. But there's a lot of like, well, we got to film it with something. And all we got is this. So
0: that's so interesting. I love that. I love that it's both. I love that it is both for artistic choices and purely functional choices.
1: Yeah, which is which is strange. I did notice as I was watching it on my TV that uh, the monochrome film stock is of great, much greater quality than uh, the color film stock. Like noticeably less grain and and more clear. Was that an affordability thing?
2: What's that? Is that an affordability thing? I mean, I think so. I think stock that was no- cheaper.
1: Yeah, you could buy a uh, uh, for cheaper. You can get better uh, quality, I think, or grades. I, I don't know how celluloid yeah. works. I don't neither. But. but yeah, I could definitely tell that. And that was just interesting on a formal level there.
2: I want to go back. We're we can go ahead and get this now. We're kind of just jumping around, I feel like. But uh, so mm-hmm. you you mentioned early on, could this film be spoiled? And I, I do raise. I, I am kind of curious about that because the big plot reveal here is that. His wife is who he sees, his dead wife is who he sees, right? right? I mean, is that a spoiler until
1: she's his mother? But yes,
2: yeah, I mean, just like Phantom of Thread. Um, <laughs> so I'm kind of curious though, because on HBO Max, if you look at the synopsis for the Clooney version, the Soderbergh version, it says, uh, in the synopsis that he encounters his dead wife, which okay, to me feels kind of like a big plot reveal. I mean. You well, know, is that to...
1: the spoiler, or is the spoiler what he finds on the planet at the end, or what, what they figure out about the planet?
2: I mean, both, right? I mean, they could both be. I mean, I, I guess I'd have to see the original trailer synopsis for this to see what how it was marketed, I guess. Yeah. That would be the thing. But it just seemed kind of like a spoiler to me to see that in the synopsis, because, I mean, to me, that's kind of a big story thing. Like, oh, crap, mm. you know, that kind of takes it to the next level.
1: Well, this film wasn't so much market, especially in the Soviet Union. You know, it ran for 15 years without ever a gap in being shown. Isn't that wild? That rules. (laughs) I mean, never in a lot of theaters, but man, they played it. They played it a lot. It was a cult favorite.
2: That is cool, though.
0: I'm trying to think of something from 2007 that I wish I could go see right now, you know?
2: I'm going to look it up right now.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Arthur,
2: you looking up the hits of 2007
0: because that
2: is... What are your thoughts on, I mean, plotting this?
0: I don't think so. That's what I was going to... Yeah, I I think you could spoil Kelvin's final fate. I think that's pretty big. I, I don't know that even... that the planet is communicating with them, that it is showing them hallucinations. I think that's all fair game. And truly, I think... I think the Harry I mean he learn he reveals who Harry is to him, Hari. Uh I'm not sure the pronunciation. I think Hari. Uh but he he, he reveals who Hari is to him like almost immediately. Um so even though it, it takes us probably an hour of screen time to get to that aspect of the film, I don't know, I feel like that's still pretty basic this is what happens in this movie information to me. Okay. But yeah, I, I think Kelvin's final fate, and we can't spoil that, that he does not leaves the planet solaris like that to me that's that's pretty huge that that's Mm -hmm. sort of got to be kept uh, yeah he doesn't go home yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah, because
0: the 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 reveal on that is so striking
2: yes it is now i do want to say and i i really do apologize that we were kind of in in cohesive uh with our discussion but it feels appropriate for this movie i think (laughs) so with that ending i i'd never you know watching this i'd never realized that this was in discussion as one of the influences on Inception. Um, yeah. And I think the ending here makes the ending of Inception a lot more concrete that Cobb is in a dream.
1: Say more, tell me more.
2: Well, I I just, you know, that's always the discussion, right? Is he in the dream? Is it, is it real? Is it in a dream? But I, I think the intertextuality here, the conversation here would maybe put Cobb in the dream.
1: Yeah. Because that is what Kelvin chooses, right?
2: Right, yeah. I mean, he chooses what makes him happy. And and for Cobb, I think, I don't know. I just, I think putting that in discussion with this adds a lot more context to where Nolan chooses to end uh, Inception.
1: I would say this, though, in Tarkovsky's defense. when, when, When Kelvin chooses the planet, he's not choosing the easy way out. He is choosing a way through it i'm trying to remember now how much of Hari's suicide is discussed in the film um
2: I, uh, that's I, not be very much because i kind of missed it i think okay i know it's, it's in that library scene right with the birthday party
1: uh no it's before that even uh that is talked about but uh she she committed suicide partially because of kelvin's neglect yeah And, uh, and so what Kelvin ends up being having psychologically manifested back at himself is what I mean, there's a line about it. It is his shame. Mm. And that he needs to be restored, you know, Mm -hmm. and needs to reckon with his own guilt about some of the things he's done and done badly and done wrongly. And, and so when he goes back down into the planet, uh, interestingly enough, uh, he, he's also having to sort of mend fences with his dad. That's who appears to him. And yeah. again, the sort of Tarkovsky standard trope for an appearance of the supernatural, which is rain that happens indoors. And so uh, as Kelvin walks up to the house, it's raining inside the house, which our first indication that something's not quite right. Yeah, Uh, with the situation. But uh, when dad comes out on the front porch and Kelvin gets on his knees and is sort of embraced Mm. strangely uh, by his father, it's a recreation of Rembrandt's uh, Parable of the Prodigal Son painting.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, and so unlike Cobb, if he's choosing the dream, he really is kind of choosing the easy way out. Uh Kelvin is sort of choosing the hard work of letting the the universe uh reflect back yourself at you and you have to face its warts
2: hmm. right yeah
1: and so there's there's a there's a certain um there there are teeth to what Tarkovsky's doing in mm-hmm. embracing a uh, an illusion that I think may be lacking if you have that same reading for what DiCaprio's doing at the end of inception yeah does, does that make sense
2: no yeah I think it's good.
1: So, I, I, you know, but which might say something about Christopher Nolan. <laughs> but that's good stuff. Um, I don't know.
0: I'm curious. We, we we you talked about what Kelvin does as a choice, and I I like that the movie is sort of deliberately vague on. And now, I, I did do a little reading and, and learned that there's the reveal in the 2002 version. Uh, kind of reveals it to be a choice a little bit more. But I, I like the ambiguity of the original version in that like, we, we don't know if Kelvin knows that he has not returned home. Oh, yeah. Like, Which I think is, I, I don't know. I, I like that ambiguity. Uh, yeah. It's kind of fun, yeah. But to to think of it as a choice does kind of, I, I like what you just had to say, though, because I it did kind of recontextualize the ending of the movie for me a little bit, because I, I had thought about it as a, um i don't know a fugue state almost right like he might not even uh yeah he, he seems so disoriented uh being back home that yeah. it, it is I mean, again th- there's some sort of talk of him not being able to go home after what he's experienced so i i definitely could see it as a deliberate choice on his part to not return home if, if that's uh just what uh the text of you know the original novel states that would make sense to me
1: yeah interesting
0: uh, do, do you, if it is a choice, though, is there is there a reason he chooses to stay? Is it just that uh, that inability of escaping what he's experienced on the space station?
1: Uh, I would uh, my reading of it would be that he has to uh, he has to face what he's done, and mm-hmm. that if he goes back and goes forward, that's like pretending like the past didn't happen. Mm. That there's a way that you could live on without actually living out and uh he 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 feels compelled to live out what he's done with harry what he's done with his father his relationship with his mother and harry and the mother sort of like that one to one paging dr freud moment there uh where harry and and, and uh the mother and young outfits kind of exchange uh costuming uh for that last sort of dream fever dream thing uh, that takes place in the film. So, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's him being forced to reckon with his past mm. and uh, to really reckon with the mirror, that what you can do is turn away from the mirror and go back home, and you can make acquaintances and friends and move on, or you can actually take stock, right? It, it, it's it's sort of uh, – the, the option seems to be not to move forward or not or return home or not. It seems to be do you choose to contemplate the abyss or not
0: well i like that that's interesting yeah
1: and that he goes back to a world of distraction if he goes back
0: well i want to go ahead and read this entire dr snout quote that we've alluded to a couple of times just to, to get the entirety of it out there because i think it speaks to uh, this movie's larger take on if not the space race uh, that was going on you know contemporary to when this movie is put out then at the very least just technology in general. Um, but Dr. Snout says we don't want to conquer space. We want to expand earth endlessly. We don't need other worlds. We need a mirror. Uh, and again, I just want to get that out there because you are sort of talking about that quote a little bit mm-hmm. um, because it is sort of the text of the movie, but I feel like it goes, it goes out and has societal implications as much as it is about, you know, interpersonal stuff. Right. Yeah. That- I, I don't
1: know. Okay. And and that's what we need to find. You know, we need to, We need to really find ourselves or find our truer selves.
0: Well, isn't it Snout that says that, uh, you know, he that questions you know, what is science or progress if there's no morality behind it? Is it mm-hmm. is it him that brings that up?
1: I think so. Yeah, I think that's Cause Snout. It,
0: yeah, because that feels like him. I mean, Sartorius's dialogue is all very. Uh, You're just a mechanical
1: from, person. And yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, mechanical reproduction. Yeah. He's 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 kind of a jerk. Yeah, I don't like <laughs> it very much. No, he he plays shithead very well, both uh, here and in Stalker. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Uh, um, go ahead. But but it is. Oh no, I was just gonna say. I, I think it's interesting that this. You know, I, you, you've mentioned already that Tarkovsky was kind of seen as a dissident within the USSR, and I just find it interesting that uh, he he's got this statement within the work itself where he's like we're just as imperialistic as anybody else we we have this imperial impulse that other uh nation states have and we shouldn't think of ourselves as as that much superior like yeah. again that's really reaching into the subtext there potentially but i i kept looking for for moments where the film felt distinctly soviet you know yeah. things that felt very much of its time and place and that that was a moment to me that that kind of rang uh, ring out in that regard
1: well that in the interview with burton in the early on in the film i feel oh, God, yeah, so yeah. painfully soviet
0: well, well it, i mean you know very bureaucratic, bureaucratic as you said which could be you know anything mm-hmm. um the sort of the the reduction of somebody's uh spiritual enlightenment uh if you want to call it that right well, let's not even call it that the 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 reduction of somebody's larger than life experience to uh, hallucination felt very uh, American to me. Yeah. And so especially our, our healthcare system, right. This sort of reduction of people's internal lives to, uh, diagnoses and pathologies. True. I thought was very interesting. Uh, but again, you're right. I mean, it, it's, there is that, that Politburo sort of aspect to it going on as well, for sure.
1: All righty. Well, do we have any other major sort of observations that we want to take on with Solaris?
0: Uh, uh, just more of the library scene a little bit, yes. if we have time. Snout sort of posits that happy people don't consider life's big questions, basically. Right. <laughs> sort, of, sort of the implication again. this. There's some talk of this in Stalker as well. If, you're if crazy right. if you
1: do because of Don Quixote, right? I mean, they, they mm-hmm. read from Don Quixote, and so you got to tilt at windmills or not be happy. Or be happy, that's, I guess, yeah.
0: You, you either tilt at windmills uh, and, and question what life means, or you just go with the flow and are happy. And I, I, don't, I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I find it a very interesting discourse yeah. happening within the movie. Uh, I don't know if I have anything to say about it, I just wanted to bring it up in case either of you did.
1: No, that's really the main thing there. That and also uh, the best way to look into who humanity is. Hari has her sort of moment of huge revelation about who the people are by looking at our art, right? Mm, So we read mm. Don Quixote and looking at the paintings and uh, that there's, again, this is a science epic, right? This big space opera. Mm -hmm. And uh, the real key to humanity is its art. Uh, That's an interesting um, choice, obviously, that a filmmaker would be very likely to make uh, in a film like that. And so we had that long meditation with Bach playing in the background on those various sort of uh, uh, hermitage paintings that we'd find in in, uh, St. Petersburg
2: so
0: I man what a cool scene what a what a great scene wikipedia has told me that that is a a painting called the hunters in the snow Mm -hmm. so there you go but anyway not important what is important is what i don't know it's there's something really evocative of the shot selection in that right we the, the way in which the birds get superimposed over the painting to kind of mm-hmm. simulate their movement and flight, uh, the way Hari uh, act the the actor sort of acts experiencing the painting, it kicks ass. It's it's maybe one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, uh, I, and you know not just because it says I ah, the, the the encounter with art is is what uh, allows you to to find your humanity. Of course, that appeals to me, but just i don't know the, the quietness of that moment it's it's one of the few times for that i felt the film was being indulgent that i didn't like have to force myself to like okay stay with it don't check out <laughs> right stay with this be here uh it, it was a moment for me and i'm like yeah i was totally on board with it um i was mostly on board with one of the longer sequences too which was the uh uh burton uh on the highways of Tokyo. Um, Apparently they kept, apparently they kept so much of that footage because it uh, some thought behind it is it was really damn expensive to, to go to to Japan and film. So they had to keep (laughs) a lot of it It was one thing that I saw, but I, I think it works really well as far as, I don't know. It, it finds a way to all of the space travel stuff that, kubrick imparts so much importance onto in 2001 it really for me like reduces space travel to highway travel in, in a pretty remarkable way yeah uh w- without using any special effects with just being a car on a highway they find a way to be like yeah travels travel <laughs> you can be you can be as fancy about it as you want to but, but you sit down a long ending. time and you're not comfortable and it, yeah. yeah yep exactly i i don't know man it really Said a lot without saying anything at all, in a way that I thought was very fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that I think there's a sort of uh, humanizing versus dehumanizing contrast of the sort of cityscape versus that sort of pastoral country. Uh, that there's a there's an interesting contrast with the opening parts of the film uh, there at the 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 sort of I don't know country home of uh, Kelvin's yes. father. So yeah, yes, indeed. very different. So, well, let's run to a verdict. What do we say? Shelf or trash concerning Tarkovsky Solaris? What do you say, Arthur?
2: Um, I think I would lightly trash this. I don't know that you need to see this one. I don't know that needs to be on the shelf anyway. And so, like I said, I am I was pretty cold on this one uh, in comparison to some of the other stuff we've done uh, for this marathon. So that's that's where I'm at with it.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton?
0: I'll give the same sort of cop out answer that I gave last week, um, or maybe it was what the the answer I gave from Metropolis. Uh, it, it should be readily accessible to you in a library. Uh, you should be able to see it on big screens whenever you want to. It should still be running in theaters, probably. You don't need to own this. Yeah, I, I, I wish I could have experienced this in the uh the, the sort of i the uh, sens- sensory isolation that is a movie theater uh that would have been a great experience i would have loved would love to see this movie big i'm sure it, it looks incredible um but yeah i, I think it it's useful for uh, academic and historical purposes um and i think there's a lot there especially if you are a real science fiction head i think this is for you mm-hmm. um i think if you're going be to begin the science fiction you probably need to not put off watching this any longer than you already have but yeah, I'm with Arthur. It's, it's definitely not for everybody. It's probably not going to make the cut for most people's physical media collections.
1: Very good, very good. Solaris is the kind of movie it, that is the reason why people have Criterion, Channel Accounts, or Canopy Accounts. Is that there are just a number of sort of indispensable, essential films that you've got to get to at some point that you may or may not return to. And Solaris is totally that kind of film. I, I have returned to it a couple of times. Uh, I was watching it and uh, one of my sons walked in and went, oh, you're watching Solaris again. So, I mean, you know, it's been playing enough in my house that he knows it that well. And uh, so, yeah, but it's a movie I've never owned. It's a movie I've repeat watched. And I think, you know, it would reward repeat watching, but it's not for everybody. But everybody does need to see it. And so it is – uh not worth the price of a physical copy DVD, but it is worth a uh, continued enjoyment of price of a, a stream a streaming service that would definitely include it, like a Criterion Channel or Canopy or whatever. Well, Canopy you don't have to pay for, but that those kinds of things, if that makes sense. So I guess I'm kind of saying the same thing Dalton is. Um, probably don't buy it, but definitely have it where you can get to it.
0: I love it when Dustin basically says the same thing that I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Happens
1: more often than I'm comfortable with, but that's another conversation (laughs) entirely. Oh, my goodness. Hey, Dalton, tell them how to have a conversation with us all via those uh, magical means on the internets.
0: Yeah, no, if you think we're a bunch of idiots for not uh, unanimously shelving Solaris, you're well within your rights to think that, and you're probably Probably correct. Yeah, go ahead and let us know about it. GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com for that long-form feedback. Um, If you're into social media, we're on Twitter, at Media. Nobody here would ever uh, encourage you to get onto Twitter if you're not already there. Uh, but if you find yourself on that weird, weird website, go ahead and give us a follow at good underscore. I'm sorry. That's our old handle at Good Trash Media uh, for links to the shows as as they're coming out. Uh, links to articles that we find interesting. Uh, just, you know, we try to keep an eye on what's going on in, in the film world and try to share it. So that's that's a fun place you can follow us. Uh, and if you want to help us keep the lights on, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, we're not making any bonus content right now. Uh, the, the world has made it very difficult to record our regular show, let alone bonus content. Uh, but if you want to help us keep the lights on, we'll send you a DVD or a Blu-ray uh, and we'll put it through the old Arthurtron 9000. Let him spin his wheels and figure out what the perfect movie for you is. Um, those are the ways you can keep in touch with us, though. All the ones that matter at any rate. Uh, I guess now it's time to ask Arthur what we're going to be doing to close out this marathon of science fiction anti-trash.
2: A quick note, uh, by the time you're hearing this, hopefully those uh, DVD Blu-ray selections have gone out to Patreon backers who are at that tier. So I uh, hope you enjoy your picks. Uh, next week, uh, we're going we're to finally dock on Earth as we bring this marathon uh, to an end, uh, just in time for maybe a wedding. Uh, possibly the end of the world because next week we take a look at Lars von Trier's Melancholia.
0: Oh, more, outstanding! More sad science fiction. I can't wait to cry.
2: It's the feel-good <laughs> movie of the year.
0: <laughs> oh, it's so good that the world ends. It's great. It's, oh, it's, hang
2: on. It's, no, you keep talking. Sorry. No, uh, no,
1: it's just—it's <laughs> going to be fantastic. You're gonna—you're gonna be so relieved that finally we can finally just stop. Oh, uh,
2: <laughs> that's it. That's the nihilist of us. Uh so Dalton <laughs> paused it earlier what two thousand and seven movies uh should still be playing in theaters. So let's just take a look at some of these Iron places. Man. Uh no, no, that was two thousand eight. That's two thousand eight. I
0: don't know. Spider ah. ah. Man uh, three. Ooh, yeah. uh, <laughs> right.
2: The number Ooh, twenty-three. We,
0: the number twenty-three, a film we've discussed on this very program. Absolutely.
2: Transformers.
0: Oh no. Sure. Sure.
2: Uh Death Proof. <laughs>
0: Okay. Hell yeah! Death Proof and of course Planet Terror. Then
2: mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm. Um Stardust.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: Super Bad.
0: All right. Okay.
2: Uh, Blades of Glory.
0: Uh, that's what I the ticket I bought to get into Grindhouse, <laughs> The double feature. <laughs> I was not seventeen yet on uh, on that April, unfortunately.
2: Uh, Paranormal Activity.
0: Oh God, that was oh seven. No, that didn't get a proper release until like oh eight or oh nine though.
2: Fourteen oh eight.
0: Oh, John Cusack, yeah. The Steve Spielberg yeah. or uh, the Steve Spielberg Stephen King movie.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um let's see there was a Harry Potter that year. There was a Pirates of the Caribbean at that year.
0: The third one, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, Sunshine.
0: Okay. Hey, that's okay, a movie well, I wish. There's your Tarkovsky yes science fiction film I mean, Yeah. Sunshine, be, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, a movie I wish I could see big. Yeah.
2: There will be blood.
0: Ooh, that's a good movie. Yeah, which means the departed was also that year too, no right? for old Men. No, no departed country. That's what I was the year before, that's yeah. right. Yeah, no man, no country, and then uh, there will be blood. Though, Oof.
2: what a what a year! Uh, In uh, half,
0: half of the time that I was watching li- watching Licorice Pizza, I found myself thinking, I could be watching There Will Be Blood right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, knocked up? Sure. Okay.
2: Uh, no, thank you. Rob Zombie's Halloween.
0: Oh God! Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: Sure. <laughs> uh, Beowulf.
0: Oh, oh my goodness oh wow Bobby Zemeckis's very own hey across
2: <laughs> the universe another movie we've talked about
0: across the universe a pretty good movie one that was great to see big and I would love to see big again
2: so there you go those are some picks I don't know uh what you guys would want to see 15 years after the fact but
0: yeah I don't know like I could go every week
1: for 15 years to see I don't know
0: yeah pretty mixed bag is what i'm gonna say yeah. yeah i i think it does come down to unfortunately uh across the universe there will be blood and no country those sort of were the three for me as you said them i was like yeah hell yeah i'd go watch that right now
1: well and sunshine i feel pretty strongly about sure. too okay
0: yeah. But
1: yeah anyway all right well that sounds like fun but i'll tell you what we are going to talk about next is the movie for next week which is as arthur just said forgotten by me already what is the movie
2: that's Melancholia.
1: Melancholia. I was like, I know it's about science fiction and stuff. Uh, there's melons.
2: There's collies. We're going to have a good old time.
1: <laughs> so if you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time.
0: Yes. Yes. Hello. English major police. Yes. <laughs> Arthur Gordon is his name. Melancholia and the infinite sadness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm still thinking about melancholies. <laughs>